trending news right now. What's happened in the world of social media in the last 24 hours? And uh, we speak to Jamie Mighty, who is researcher, analyst and social commentator this Tuesday. How are you, Jamie? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for catching up with us and making time. How's the week started for you? Well, I mean, the weather was a bit bleak yesterday, but otherwise, the week is looking positive. Yeah, the weather was something else yesterday, but they did warn <laughs> us. <laughs> I don't know they if you can ever us. be prepared, though, for that kind of cold, but yeah. <laughs> true, true, because then you have to step outside. <laughs> you yeah. feel it. All right. Uh, let's start uh, talking hashtag Jacob Zuma today. The Jacob Zuma Foundation spokesperson, Zwanele Manyi, saying that the case uh, around his medical parole, because there's quite a few, is another attempt to undermine the former president's integrity. Mm, yes. Um, so as everyone knows that, um, you know, there was a lot of contestation about Jacob Zuma's medical parole, Arthur Fraser's role in giving that medical parole. And, you know, now uh, the spokesperson of the Jacob Zuma Foundation has come forward and said these things. And I think the real issue that we all have to be cognizant of is that thin line between politics and law. And oftentimes we ignore it uh, because, you know, uh, many countries are stable and you can aggressively, um, you know, pursue law without any consideration of that. But I think since July, we've realized that South Africa is a relatively fragile democracy and we have to think very carefully about all of the connotations and implications of these kinds of actions. And, you know, uh, I raised last year that we did the TRSC at a certain point in our history because of the delicacy of uh, nation building. And uh, I think sometimes we forget that we're not so far removed from, you know, the birth of this particular democracy. Uh, we're 28 years into it. And, you know, we have to navigate with that kind of uh, sensitivity. That being said, I think uh, the arguments that were made in court are really of an administrative law nature. And that's what the, co- the court will be considering, whether or not other phrases had, um, you know, the authority to make that kind of a decision and then to then consider the issue of whether or not, you know, Jacob Zuma has uh, served the time because the Democratic Alliance, in as much as they are now arguing in the court, you know, that this parole was not a real uh, parole, they also went to the courts to block Jacob Zuma's movement on the basis of the fact that he was on parole. And those are some of the things that the court has to consider. Uh, But obviously everyone else is thinking about the the, the, the dynamics between the political figure of Jacob Zuma, um, you know, the support that he has had, and some of the events that played out last year. And when a democracy has certain, you know, points of fissure, you have to think very carefully just in terms of what you prosecute, what you pursue in terms of the law, and uh, what you sometimes seek some kinds of settlements with. And, uh, you know, national prosecuting authorities often have to do that kind of a way up. And even now in America, they are thinking about exactly the same thing. In terms of those dynamics as it pertains to politics, I mean, uh, Manny also saying that this whole case is misplaced and that this is political. The reason that was also given by former Correctional Services boss Arthur Frazier for granting parole was that there was a fear of unrest. Can we not shift then from those dynamics of politics and the pointing of fingers on that part of it and look at it as the state was in a very uh, vulnerable uh, situation and state? There was unrest and the fear thereof. 
yeah, definitely there was a lot of fear about the unrest. Uh, but unfortunately, in, the, in this particular case, Arthur Fraser is not the person to make that particular form of an argument. In fact, some of his arguments should have been made uh, in different uh, bodies or outside of Arthur Fraser. He, you know, as, 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 as in his role would not have been, you know, like really empowered to make an assessment about, you know, the country is not stable, et cetera, et cetera. However, be that as it may, um, those conditions are still very real. And when all of us think about this particular issue, we have to consider, you know, the dynamics that exist on the ground. So oftentimes when you have young democracies, when you have post-conflict societies, these are some of the things that have to be considered to say, okay, we know that we have a hard line, you know, called rule of law, and then we know that we have the political uh, situation, and then at the same time we're participating in nation building, and conflict, uh, you know, and division and fragmentation Mm. can undermine uh, nation building, and those are all of the things which led to the TRC being set up the way that it was, and even now you've read uh, Prof. Madoncella arguing that you know, there needs to be some kind of a TRC for state capture so that we can close some of the loopholes without necessarily threatening people with prison. Otherwise, we won't be able to get a full picture. That kind of thinking is is really part of part and parcel of, um, you know, navigating a, a nascent democracy such as this one. Two medical reports recommending this parole, but then Afriforum sentiments being that this was irrational and it was unlawful. What are your thoughts on that? Well, on the merits of the case, I actually think that whenever you're dealing with the case of somebody who's over 75, there are a lot of medical conditions that somebody of that age would normally have, regardless, because living 75 years in and of itself, it it comes with a lot of medical conditions. You know, Mm. it's it's unlike that a 75-year-old will have a clean bill of health. So I think that we also have to be very cognizant of the realities that, and as much as Mr. Jacob Zuma may seem to be a vibrant old man, he is still an old man. And I don't think that the arguments that, you know, he isn't perfect health, you know, uh, are necessarily genuine or good faith arguments. I think that, you know, he is an old man. He probably has a lot of that is going on within his body. And, um, you know, just on those grounds, he probably does deserve to have uh, some kind of house arrest and medical parole. And the issue, I think, in, in, in considering this whole thing is that he was sent into, straight into prison during a time of a pandemic, which was one that actually affects older people uh, in, in, a, in a more aggressive fashion. And uh, we often, uh, you know, I think underplay the fact that COVID has been very dangerous to seniors vaccinated or, or not. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same kind of success rate as younger people. And when you put someone in a facility such as a prison, um, I think that can be a significant dis- disruption and risk considering that we're in the p- pandemic. So I don't think that Afro Forum's contributions to this particular matter were good faith contributions. Okay, let's move on talking hashtag Misu Zulu, the uh, Zulu royal family being divided with some supporting Prince Misu Zulu and others throwing in their lot with his brother, Prince Simakate, the versus uh, match going on here, and that's been, you know, going on for some time. Mm. Uh, uh, tell us more on this one. Well, um, we, we we all know and saw on social media the uh, ceremony that was undertaken by Prince Simakate, um, you know, when he went into the crowd and uh, basically coronated himself 
um, the king. But it seems very clear that um, there's a process which is supposed to happen where um, King Misuzulu is supposed to go into the crowd this weekend. And that has the support of, you know, the government um, nationally. President Cyril Ramaphosa has issued uh, a missive in that respect. It has the KZN provincial government and also the support of um a lot of senior officials within the royal structures. So even though there is this contestation between Prince Simagate and King Misuzulu, I think it's a foregone conclusion. But in terms of whether or not the king will go through his process, his crowd entering ceremony this weekend. But I think after the fact, it does not erase some of the divisions which are now continuing, because one would have hoped that by now, you know, the diplomacy within the kingdom would have settled issues of how will the prince be supported financially, um, how will the issues that are of concern to other people who have not yet recognized the king be dealt with so that the Zulu kingdom can have a unified front to the rest of the nation. As things stand, their issues are just percolating to the top, and when you have such public criticisms of an incoming king, that can slow down their execution of mandate, that can slow down their credibility, because mm. you need the whole of the Zulu kingdom to embrace you. You you can't really continue to have istunzi when your brother is saying, Hausazi Zulu, you know, you're not legitimate, you are, you are, you are, you are a proxy of uh, uh, King Swati and all of those things. So it's going to be a very tricky period in terms of building credibility, because on the political front, some people are saying, you know, why is Andile Ramaphosa speaking to you, and this and that and that. All of these rumors, innuendos, are not good for an incoming king. That is your honeymoon period where you want to have the full support of the people, the full support of the government and the politicians, and this could indicate a slight weakening of the Zulu kingdom. I still think it is a solidified kingdom, but this kind of noise can create um, long-term ramifications if it's not addressed. And I think they may need to be, at some point, some kind of a sit-down between uh, the men, sometime, some kind of a reconciliation and remediation between them, because it can really begin to be um, the fragmentation of the kingdom as we know it. There is definitely a fragmentation that comes across here, and there may be a miscommunication as well. I mean, as you mentioned, Prince Magade, uh, the eldest son of the late king, uh, King Goodwill Zuelitini, holding his own Ukungena Esbayeni and then you, uh, the Amazulu traditional prime minister, Prince Mangosu Tubutele, is coming to clarify and saying, but this ceremony is uh, not uh, for the anointing of the king, as some may think. Mm-hmm. It's a significant event following the death of a monarch. So over and above the fragmentation, does this speak to maybe a misunderstanding also? And I guess further uh, 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 p- pointing to the fact that there seems to be this ongoing conflict here. I don't know whether it is a misunderstanding or if it it is a, a case of I'm going to do what I feel is right for me. Yeah, I think I think uh, Prince Butelezi was trying to, uh, you know, uh, massage the, 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 the communications there somewhat because of some of the social media videos which came out and some of the proclamations and the rhetoric of, uh, you know, um, the uh, Prince Simagati were very clear that this is this is not just, you know, something that happens after the, the, the death of the king, that this, he's actually trying to 
make a play for the king, the kingdom himself. So I think that obviously, you know, when you are speaking to the media, you want to sometimes, as a representative of the kingdom, to downplay certain divisions. But I think because the divisions are playing out so much in public, those those kind of um, communications attempts don't land because the people will have seen what will have happened. They will have heard from uh, the prince himself, his social media video saying that, you know, uh, you know, you can't be dictated to by people who have money and sofas, et cetera, et cetera. All of that rhetoric is out there and has been cons- consumed and shared widely. And therefore, some of the rhetoric won't land necessarily the same way. But I think what um, uh, Prince Boutelez was trying to do was to also give him a way out to say, listen, you're not going to win, but maybe you can start to say this and then we can find each other on the road, so to speak. The uh, King Misuzulu being recognized by President Cyril Ramaphosa, that recognition, does it hold any weight? It does hold weight because at the end of the day, what um, creates strength of a kingdom are our resources, you know, budget. And if you don't have access to budget, you don't have access to some of the legislative authority which rests with the king, you do need that governmental recognition. So the fact that the KZN provincial government recognizes King Misuzulu, the fact that the presidency recognizes King Misuzulu, the fact that COPTA, the whole ministry, will be dealing with uh, King Misuzulu basically means that he has a clear runway to be able to get direct access to the budget, which is a significant budget. I think it approaches 100 million, although there's been a discussion of reducing it for the kingdom, for um, the royal house and all of those things. So you you can't be um, a king in name only. You have to be a king indeed. And that means being able to pay salaries of people in the kingdom, being able to have budget to run certain traditional ceremonies and to, uh, you know, communicate with the whole kingdom. So fundamentally, that um, economic support will only be able to be accessed by, you know, King Misuzulu. Basically, he has the FNB card. And at the end of the day, that is a big differentiator in who has legitimacy uh, in the long term. Because if you don't have money, even if you call yourself a king, it's, it, it doesn't mean much. But what it can do is that it can really damage the, the sitting king and create pockets um, of animosity and resentment and those kind of things can undermine uh, kingship and credibility because um, that gravitas the the is tunzi basically yeah. is very important for a king. All right, let's take a short break and uh, we'll continue with our chat. Uh, give uh, Jamie a chance to sip on some water with lemon there. If that's what you need to do, Jamie. Uh, continuing our chat right after this. This is SAFM Sound Awake. Trending news right now. In conversation with Jamie Mighty, researcher, analyst and social commentator on our trending news, looking at the past 24 hours on this terrific Tuesday. Uh, let's move on from that one then and talk about hashtag IPID now, Jamie. Uh, there's a launch that's been now made by IPID after cops assaulted a fishhook man, which uh, was a video that went viral and then there was reaction. Tell us more. Yeah, so um, everyone was shocked to see this video of a gentleman being assaulted um, in in Cape Town, or rather in the Western Cape, um, when it seems he called the police, and then there was some kind of um, disagreement, and um, at the end of it, he was being beat up, the police were stomping him, he was being beat with batons, and the video has gone viral, and many people have raised the issue of uh, police brutality, and this happened in Emerald Crescent. Mm. 
you know, it was, it, was, it was very disturbing and it reminded me of some of the footage which occurred during the pandemic. If you recall, you know, people were being told to go back into their houses to sleep and, you know, there was a granny who was drinking tea at her door and she was also instructed to go back into her house because there was an over-enforcement. Um, some, sometimes the military made people frog march in the streets of Alex, which is it was all like a an overcompensation um, and an overzealousness in the application of law. But this def- definitely looks to be an issue of police brutality, and it may very well be that this man will be able to win um, a, a case uh, against the police and the minister of police because there is a case law that actually allows you to sue the minister of police for police negligence or malpractice. Mm. And I, I think that this is where this is particularly going because even though I did say that looking into the matter, I, I don't think that it's going to stop this particular individual from pursuing um, legal options. Uh, uh, Yusuf Abramji was one of the people who shared it. Ian Cameron as well shared the same video. And I did say that they've been notified and that, you know, they're going to investigate um, with IP West and Cape and see what they can do. But I think it's also critical in the in the week of remembering Marikana that while so many police were seen by us shooting at um, the miners, and we all know that so many miners were, were killed and there may have been a very extreme use of force there. There have been no consequences for those particular police people. And, you know, the families of, of, the, of the Marikana miners have had to navigate the fact that they won't see that kind of justice and I have to deal with the fact that all that they would get is a commission and, um, you know, some support from the mine itself. All of this is to say that sometimes, you know, when there is police misconduct of this particular uh, level, you don't always see uh, justice. I think even Torozisi and Dumba, if you recall, um, you know, he was killed by the police in Bramfontein. And, um, you know, the footage, at some point, they said it disappeared. They couldn't find... um, the, the witnesses, and then it took a newsroom 24, uh, newsroom Africa um, journalist to say that I found this person within two hours of doing online research. How is it possible that the police and the prosecution couldn't find this person? So in terms of that, this is all to say that as much as there's an announcement of an investigation, I think it's going to be very important for everyone to keep following up with this so that there is um, the right level of scrutiny, because sometimes these investigations don't materialize in justice for the victims. However, in terms of a civil case, um, I think that he may be able to, um, you know, win against the police because the footage is out there. It's obviously a gross misuse of power, and this is not um, what the police mandate is. Talking police mandate, uh, reports saying that the police rejected the social media post and video that was brought forward as evidence by members of the Fishuk Community Forum. In this day and, and, and age, surely that should be speeding up investigations, not being rejected. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, in Africa, we've got this problem that we take a very long time to do things that should take, um, you know, a matter of days, because this is an open and shut case, actually. Because the video footage mm. is real evidence, you know, in, in, in law, you've got different kinds of evidence, real evidence, documentary evidence, et cetera, et cetera. But there probably is a medical report, the footage is already accessible. So in terms of resolving this matter, this should be open and shut, um, you know, game over. But the fact that we have these processes sometimes which end up being used to protect colleagues within the 
police force, etc., etc. This is why we see these kind of things. You know, whether it's Andres Badane, Mtawose Sindumba, and now this particular gentleman in the Western Cape, you often will find that, you know, even when there's obvious evidence, the police will keep pushing back because it's about um, a colleague and that's why they will attempt to deny something that everyone can see. They are obviously policemen. They are obviously uh, abusing their power. They went over and above what is required because you're supposed to use appropriate force to restrain somebody if you're going to arrest them. And and that's all. You're not supposed to participate in basically what was assault, uh, GBH here, grievous bodily harm because you don't know what kind of internal damages somebody could receive from being um, brutally beat down in the manner that he was. Okay, let's move to Kenya then from our shores. Uh, Hashtag William Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, uh, being able to hold on to a lead after elections being held there, winning over uh, opposition leader Raila Odinga. Uh, Yeah, it was a very close one there. I don't know, Raila Odinga been trying for five times. Uh, Maybe you should just sit down now. Uh, because also they've both been at the helm of leadership. They've had a chance to be in leadership, um, Odinga being former prime minister and Ruto being deputy president. Uh, but they, this didn't go without uh, criticism, of course. Yes, yes, and I think that, that also will be a bit of a problem just moving forward, and there may even be some some kind of a court challenge, because what we saw is that there was drama in the the, the the announcement venue, people were fighting, and the win in and of itself was very narrow, I think 50.4% mm. uh, versus 49 point uh, something to that effect. And and the reason why that um, 50% threshold is important is that they were trying to avoid a runoff where you actually have to go now and the two candidates run again by themselves. Because, you know, Kenyan elections are very sensitive. People have died in the past and even this week was full of tension because it started off looking like the results would be announced very fast and then things slowed down and then there was some anxiety and, uh, you know, people started getting concerned to say, listen, what's now happening? And I think that's where you, 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 you find Kenya in as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a country. Now, in terms of Ruto and what he will be able to accomplish, you know, I was asked this last week as well to say, mm-hmm. what do you think about the Kenyan leadership? I think that the, the, the challenges in Kenya are so entrenched. It's, it's almost uh, disappointing when you think about And this is why I think the turnout was significantly lower, because it was 80% in the previous election, but only 60% this time around, because many of the young people actually said, we're not going to show up for this particular election. We're not interested. It's a large country. 55 million people, you know, and it's a relatively young country in terms of um, the youth demographic. And Mm. the the economy is growing for the elite. It's growing for those who work in, if you you consider it to be the center type of jobs. But for everybody else, they feel like they're still left out. There are issues of slums. There are still issues of terror. There are issues of security and... You know, it's a vibrant economy with opportunities, but many people feel like they are not actually able to access the economy. But in terms of choosing between Ruto and Raila uh, uh, Odinga, he's, he's relatively younger at 55, whereas Raila Odinga is 77. You know, you, you said he's been running for a very long time. And, yeah, I think that this could be the end of the road for him. And yeah. I was actually just thinking that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't normalize this trend where countries are relatively young, but the leadership is significantly older because 
uh, what that happens is that there's a disconnect between what the youth of a country want to achieve their goals and objectives and some of the things that the old people prioritize and what they're still debating about. You know, we often see this even in Southern Africa where people are still talking about things that are happening in the bush during the struggle and people are trying to think about, you know, private school is expensive, housing is expensive, and these are the things I want to be dealt with. I don't care about who was a spy in Mkonto and, you know, who said what in what, what meeting. In, in Tanzania, you know, and um, that, that's really one of the challenges we have when we have these elder statesmen controlling nations which are relatively young. But when it comes to um, what does this mean for the governance of Kenya, I think it's continuity really, because uh, Ruto was deputy president under Uhuru and what the, uh, under 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 Uhuru Kenyatta, and what that means is that it's going to be basically a continuation. So there's going to be policy stability policy certainty, and these are things that matter to investors. And because there are geopolitical challenges in that part of Africa with the terror groups that are existing in Somalia, Somaliland, I think um, the international community is going to be very happy with this particular outcome. But clearly uh, there are some concerns from the youth because they feel like this is not going to change their lives. That very continuity which is celebrated by some will definitely be something that is looked at negatively by other people. But unfortunately, there's a large gap, you know, between Mm -hmm. the people who have been in politics for a very long time in Kenya and the youth voices. And I think you even see this in Nigeria, where you've got all of these old names which are being circulated for presidency, and they don't connect with young people. But now young people cannot find pathways to actually becoming prominent political figures just simply because it costs a lot of money to become a national brand in a big country like that. And no one is going to be investing in your political journey unless you're already a well-established millionaire or billionaire. But we don't have a lot of those in yeah. Africa. Yeah, that is the the challenge there with old money going to old hands. Let's uh, yeah. talk about, uh, on a sad note, uh, R.I.P. Magesh, Dukulo Magesh Chabalala, former TKZ member mm-hmm. and uh, quite a legend who's passed away at the age of 45. Yeah, it was actually a very sad day for fans of music in South Africa because TKZ was, um, you know, the, the the soundtrack of a generation. Yeah. And they contributed so many hits and they were part of such uh, significant moments in South African history. You know, the performance of Bafana Bafana at AFCON and many moments where, you know, in the 2000s, um, if you're not listening to TKZ, you're basically... A, a nerd or somebody who didn't want to listen to radio. And so I think many people were very um, hurt um, that, you know, this death had happened so unexpectedly, apparently, because as a result of a seizure. And, um, you know, everyone is still now reconciling the fact that this is the end of the TKZ era in, in terms of, you know, there have been attempts to come back and do some, you know, revival type of shows. But now that chapter is really genuinely closed and many people were now also really reflecting on the impact of TKZ in the South African music scene, the careers of, of these men and um, you know how really they they were able to, to really be a soundscape for Africa. Mm-hmm. Many people in Africa are very familiar with TKZ, with Palapala and all of um, Palafala and all of these other uh, songs that they had. And even followed the careers of them after they started having solo careers. And I think one of the things we we have to reflect on in terms of our 
the way that we treat our musical legends and our artists in, in Africa and in South Africa is that we often very forgetful um, after a period of time. Whereas if you look at how the Americans conduct themselves, they still celebrate Mary J. Blige. They still celebrate a lot of the icons who are able to create the genre that they enjoy, you know, the people who put in the hard work to um, create hip-hop. And we, I think, need to now start thinking about, yes, of course, musical careers will will have an ebb and a flow, they'll rise and they'll fall, but what are we going to do to those people who are really in the Hall of Fame? Mm. Because Makesh was in the Hall of Fame for Kwaito, for South African urban music, in terms of even pushing African music forward and showing that people can have commercial success that is that cross over, crosses over, you know, across racial lines, crosses over into the continent, you know, and creates this uh, audience which really is truly appreciative. They really raise the South African flag high as TKZ and uh, as, as 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 we were hearing from his his, his, his uh, band members, he was the brains behind a lot of the hits, and he was the one who actually was the engine of TKZ. You know, mm-hmm. so when you have such a legend, such an icon, such a such a contributor um, to the genre and to South African music, one wonders, you know, what else we could do when when our artists, you know reach the the end of a certain phase of their careers, what kind of support, what kind of prestige should we give them so that they can continue to, you know, get their flowers, as it's yeah. so, it said. Because Gabelo was very vocal to say, you know what, it's Doholo who did this, and it's Makesh who did that, and you guys don't even know, he's the one who gave me the chance. Uh, but I think as society, we sometimes, you know, move on and not spend a lot of time really making sure that that, history is captured and celebrated in the right way. A three-decade-long career is one that we should definitely continue to celebrate. And, I mean, as you say, he was a songwriter as well. There was so much creativity to this man. And as TKZ, they really were mavericks, even though Dukulo uh, mm-hmm. kept a public presence uh, didn't really keep a public uh, presence in the last decade. Uh, we should definitely remember him as one of Kwaito's most renowned musicians, renowned, uh, also having solo projects there. Uh, but, yeah definitely one to remember. I think we'll talk about this on Friday again as we wrap up our entertainment news. Okay, let's leave it there. Uh, just a comment for you, uh, Jamie, on our Twitter, Msongi Wase Kubazi says, well-balanced analysis, Seabonga. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the week. You too. Thanks. Jamie Mighty is researcher and analyst and uh, social commentator joining us for Trending News.